How you guys doing out there? Good? <laughs> hey, hope you're doing well and uh, readying yourself for the blitz of holidays coming up starting next week with Halloween, right? And uh, not to mention Thanksgiving and Christmas and this other weird thing that's happening in a couple weeks, national election for president. Uh, no pressure, just uh, a wacky fall. Uh, speaking of uh, strange and weird, uh, we're beginning a new series today uh, called Living in Babylon. We are going to be walking through the book of Daniel and we're looking at it through the lens of how does one deal with, how does one survive, how does one live, maybe even thrive in a system that's completely foreign and maybe has values increasingly different from ours. We've seen at the beginning of the show uh, here a video of a cat kind of getting used to its new surroundings, uh, and then this weird uh, video of strange customs around the world. Imagine living in some of those. You lose a relative, whack a finger off. I don't know. It seems like it's self-defeating, but that's just me. Uh, both, of those message, both of those videos kind of tie into our message today. Let me just pray for our time, and we'll, we'll get to it. God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for those that are here. Thanks for your word, which tells us things we wouldn't know about ourselves, about you, and how we're supposed to function. Uh, pray that we are uh, not left to our own devices. Thank you for that, that we have you to instruct us, the God, the creator of all things, the one who makes everything work and fashions everything together, knows everything from the beginning to the end. Thank you, Lord, that you called us to be yours. We pray that you would descend on us this morning. Give us hearts that hear, uh, minds that agree with what you say, and, and bodies that follow, that mind that says, I will follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's uh, 605 BC. Some of you remember that. Uh, Paul, uh, and the world supremacy is at stake, right? It's the big showdown everybody's been expecting. Uh, it's happening on the western side of the Euphrates in what is today uh, modern-day Turkey, a little town called Karkamesh. Uh, everybody knew that their entire economic and political system was at risk, and it wasn't becoming because of just a vote for president. The up-and-comer world power, Babylon, was flexing. It was moving across the known world, uh, conquering everything in its path. In desperation, the Egyptians and the Assyrians uh, band together to try to thwart this uh, advance uh, for this epic battle. The whole thing is taking place there at Carchemish. Not much of a battle, really. Uh, Egyptians and Assyrians are completely routed. Egypt chased back to North Africa, Assyria completely eradicated, never to be heard from again, and Babylon decides, okay, we're going to march straight south, heading for Israel. Israel, just another nation that's going to learn who's in charge now. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at this uh, event, post, post this event of uh, the conquering of, of Israel, about four particular individuals who uh, see their entire country overrun and their entire lives completely upset. And here's how the book of Daniel opens. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He didn't, he didn't come for a visit. Right? He, he came to besiege it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, 
endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So Babylon, having now defeated Egypt and Assyria, overwhelms Israel, and it'd be easy to think, okay, we are the people of God. We're God's chosen people. This is the land God has given us to live on, and yet these Babylonian pagans have overrun us. Be easy to think, God, where are you in the middle of all this? You may be thinking much the same thing about America as we face this election in two weeks. Okay, so you're Babylon. It's 605 BC. You want to rule your uh, conquered conquered nations with an iron fist, but uh, your capital is 500 plus miles away. Uh, No jets, no fast cars, communication by camel and horse, not all that fast. How do you ensure people 500 miles away that you've just conquered continue to behave? Well, Babylon has a a system. First thing we see in verse 2, the Lord delivers Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, the temple. We do not have time this morning, but if you want to put a note somewhere in your your phone or whatever, just put 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, You ought to read that because it describes all the stuff that was in the house of God, the silverware and such that the Babylonians take up. Uh, You'll want to see that because later on in this series, that silverware, (laughs) that stuff shows up again. But why do we get such detail about the dishes and mugs and lamps and silverware and all that? Well, carting that stuff off was kind of common practice for conquering soldiers, right? Uh, kind of like, apparently like Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm, just steals silverware wherever he goes, right? Uh, but for them, unlike Larry David, for them, uh, it was a way of demonstrating that our God is stronger than your God. We'll take your God's stuff, and we'll put your God's stuff in our God's temple. So the next time you go in to pray to your God, and you see that all of his stuff is gone, his cupboard is bare, it will remind you that we just kicked your God's butt. So maybe you'll think twice about whether you should be praying to that God since he's been defeated. Second thing Babylon does is this. They take the cream of the crop of the next generation in Israel. We don't get the details right here, but if you want to put uh, in your notes 2 Kings chapter 24, what you read there is the additional detail that Nebuchadnezzar took 10,000 people to Babylon in exile. Uh, You've also got Babylonian administrative documents like the one on the screen that detail the taking of the Jews, including King Jehoiakim back to exile. Now, when you're talking about a small country like Israel, in fact, you might remember Israel wasn't really Israel at that point. The northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes had already been uh, conquered by uh, the Assyrians. The only thing left of Israel at that point were the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. When you take 10,000 of those youths out, that leaves a huge gap. It's also telling the Israelites something else. Hey, you know, we're going to go back to our place. You're now under our control. You do what we say. And uh, just in case you get the bright idea of revolting, uh, just in case you get the great, the great idea of maybe joining forces with somebody else around us to try to, to, try to get your independence, we just know this. 
we can, at the drop of a hat, send 10,000 heads back to you of your kids. So mind your P's and Q's. We now own you. So times are tough. And I don't know about you as a Christian, but sometimes I feel like living in America these days, I kind of feel like I'm living in a world that's taken me captive, where it seems like maybe God doesn't show up. Our own country is kind of strange. We've moved further and further away from God, uh, not to make a fine point about the election. But I will say this, when a presidential candidate stands up and endorses partial birth abortion, that has nothing over anything that the ISIS, ISIS has done. It's a brutal, horrific death. Being a Christian isn't that cool anymore if you can have presidential candidates saying that on national television. And oh, that's good news in one way. Fewer and fewer pretenders show up to churches on Sunday. It's not the place to be anymore just to get your social contacts going, right? But the downside is this also, that the country's kind of turning on us a little bit. Things are bad, not just here, though, but all over the world. UNICEF says this, there are 153 million orphans around the world. 153 million orphans around the globe. Highest concentration is in sub-Saharan Africa, where HIV, AIDS, and war has basically emasculated generations of parents. And guess what? The kids did nothing at all to deserve that. Be easy to ask, where's God in all that? We've got starvation today. Where's God in all that? You hear what's going on in Nigeria. A third of the world doesn't have clean water or sanitation. Do you know that half of the world's hospital beds are filled with people who simply have waterborne diseases from unclean water? Where's God in all that? Even the violence in our own country, rapes, murders, abuses. When you look around, it'd be very easy to say, man, it looks like maybe God has gotten his butt kicked in America, in the world. Some people I talk to actually tell me that the, what's going on in the world is just kind of proof that God isn't real. I mean, sure, if, you're, if you want to believe in Christ, you want to believe in church, you want to believe in all that stuff, you need a crutch of some kind, go ahead, believe in him. But look, the world, what's going on, proves that God doesn't exist. Maybe you've had some of those conversations yourself. Well, here's my thought. A group of guys with really long hair doesn't really provide proof that there's no such thing as a barber. A junkyard full of broken down vehicles really isn't solid proof that there's no such thing as an auto mechanic. And maybe you think, well, Dwayne, that just sounds goofy. But look, I, I can look at a world through the lens that God provides with his perspective and still conclude that God exists. Getting God's perspective tells me, look, you know what the world is going through is the result of man's rebellion against God and the results of that rebellion. And for the next few weeks, we're going to discover something about how do you live in a world where that's the system, right? That's where our story starts. But we need to get some perspective then a little bit on what's going on, what has happened, what went on that caused this over being overrun by the Babylonians. In a world that doesn't seem to make sense, the author of the book of Daniel wants us to know that God is still sovereign, God is still in control, nothing has happened that's beyond his grasp, beyond his control, and he makes that clear because when bad things happen, don't we always, don't we always ask, why would God do that? Why would God allow that? Why would God not uh, stop that? It's, it's a great question. Those are great questions. So you want to write down Jeremiah 25, because we're told in that passage 
what has been going on in Israel that has allowed this Babylonian conquest, right? What, uh, 23 years has been going on, and we hear that what's been going on for those 23 years. It's through the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who was sent as the prophet to the southern tribes. Here's what he says. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, Jeremiah, and I, Jeremiah, have spoken persistently to you, people of Israel, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a waste and a ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah, prophet of God, sent to Judah, says, look around at the world and go, where's God in all this destruction that just happened? Why is my marriage, my finances, my kids, why is everything in shambles? Why is my life going down in this kind of spiral? And Jeremiah tells them, look, for years and years and years and years, you have not listened to God, and God has removed his protection. And he tells them that Nebuchadnezzar will come from the north, which is what they did, straight south from Carchemish, and run straight over you all, and he will rule you for 70 years. People, we live in a land that has abandoned the truth that there is one God, one creator. Yeah, we might believe he exists, but we live lifestyles that maybe put other gods in front of him. Well, Dwayne, what are you talking about with this other gods? Well, look at what Babylon worshipped. Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. Look, look at what Babylon's values are when they drag the exiles out of Israel. Tell me if you see any similarities between this and our world. Here's what they look for. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What's the priority system of Babylon? Youth, at least appearance of it. I want you to have great bodies. Got to be in shape. Hit the gym. No physical defects. Oh, oh and you got to be attractive. Great looking heads, too. Bodies, beauty. We want value. We want people of worth. You got to have smarts got to have skills, or at least great aptitude, stoke up that resume. Sell out to make sure you get into that particular school, to get that particular job. That, that sound at all familiar? The United States of America? If you don't think so, you've not watched a commercial in 25 years. Here's what we're going to do, Babylonians say. We're going to train you intensively for three years. We're going to teach you to think like we think, act like we think, do what we do, become like one of us, live like we do. We want you to take you, your beliefs, your God, your system, and let you know, look, it doesn't work. 
because our God just spanked yours. We want you to get the values of our kingdom, youth, performance, looks. Look, every magazine rack in America, every billboard today in our world rings the same as Babylon, every TV show. Babylon has you grab onto anything that can make you great and tells you not to let go of it. That's the philosophy of the empire. Take the best of the best. Grab onto it, hold onto it, don't let go. We're gonna see this as the weeks unfold. It's a system that says, look, look at me, look at everything I've obtained, look at everything that I have obtained. The Bible says, look, every good gift that you have comes from God. Babylon says, everything's about me. The Bible says, you ought to think more highly of other people. Babylon says, love those who love you back. The Bible says, no, that's not love. Even the wretched people of the world do that. Love those who persecute you. The Bible says, to deny yourself, Babylon says, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. Doesn't matter. Babylon says, get as much as you can, as fast as you can. The Bible says, give as much as you can. See how the philosophies oppose each other? Babylon is a representation of the world you and I live in today as Christians. And that culture does everything in its power to mold us according to its image. Very easy to fall into that trap. So, what are they going to teach these guys? Verse 4, the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were the ruling tribe of Babylon. It's useful to go back to the original word Chaldean. Uh, Chaldeans were experienced in magic and sorcery. In fact, uh, the, the word Chaldean was actually, it, when you, somebody would say you're a Chaldean, it would actually mean that they were sorcerers or magicians. It was this art that made them famous. So their accumulated literature, in addition to the, some great science stuff like glass blowing and all the as mathematics and astrology, the literature also included omens and magic formulas and incantations and legends and all that kind of stuff, witchcraft, right? Uh, to begin to study Babylonian literature was to enter in for a Jewish boy Completely different, a completely alien thought world for those guys. We're going to do everything we can to make you love our world. Not only know our world, but to love our world. It's so much better than that podunk farm village we stole you from back in Israel. First John says this, even though we are to be in the world, we are not to be of the world. That Satan has been granted temporary rule over the world, and that the philosophy from Babylon is exactly the same as it is today. Sure. Pray to whatever God you want. But just act like we act. Be consumed with what we're consumed by. Buy into our philosophy of life. And this is the philosophy of our current world. And we are bombarded with it incessantly every day to buy into it. Now, in the middle of this particular backdrop, our four heroes show up. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, among these referring to the 10,000 exiles, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So in addition to everything else that's going on with these guys, they decided to change their names. Why? Were the, were the names easier to pronounce? No, no, no. Daniel means Yahweh is judge. His new name, Belteshazzar, means may Bel protect his life. That's a Babylonian god. Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. But Shadrach, his new name, meant servant of Aku, the moon god. Mishael meant who is like our god, Yahweh. Meshach means who is like Aku. Azariah means my god, Yahweh is helper. Abednego means I'm a servant of Nebo, another god. These, every one of these guys came to Babylon with names that referred back to the god of their country. 
but they got their names changed. Now, we want you to identify and reflect who we are. Here's what I find interesting. The guys do not get into a big fight about their name changes. I would have thought, that's crazy. That, that's who I am, right? They don't, but they don't resist learning the culture either. You know what they fight about? It's really kind of funny. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, who said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. The boss man was fearful. He would be killed if this went badly, if he agreed to Daniel's request. And by the way, Daniel's request was a request, but he'd already made a conviction in his heart he wouldn't defile himself, which meant I'm going to ask politely to be allowed not to eat this food, but you know what? I'm not going to eat it, no matter if if I'm denied. My conviction is I'm not going to eat it. So he could have been killed on the spot. And by the way, the boss man was right to be a little bit concerned about Nebuchadnezzar. He's the kind of guy that would make you watch as he slaughtered your children and roast people over fire. That's kind of the guy he was. This official knows the king is going to kill him if Daniel ends up looking worse than the other guys. But Daniel draws a line in the sign. He goes all Tom Petty. I won't back down over that. Yeah, food. And I'm thinking, man, Daniel, good food. That's about the best thing that's happened to you in the last, in the last 25 minutes, right? Uh, your whole country's been eradicated. You've been stolen from your family. You've been transported 500 miles. You get a name change. Somebody's offering you some good food. Nope, nope, nope. You're complaining about food, not a name change. We're not exactly sure why. Could have been because of the dietary laws of the Jews that God set out, how animals were were to be cut and bled, uh, and the way that other countries didn't do that. Could have been that God, 3,000 years before we understood anything about germs, said, man, don't mess around with blood. Well, why not, God? Well, it may not seem right to you. I know it doesn't seem right, but you may not understand it for 1,000 years or so, but entire plagues and towns and villages are going to be wiped out with diseases, blood-borne, but not Israel. Why? Because thousands of years before, anybody knew any reason for it, they did things by God's way. Don't mess with blood. Well, we know that now, right? When you deal with blood, you use gloves and masks and all that kind of stuff, right? But that's all in God's laws and go way back. So Daniel takes a stand. You can call me what you want outwardly. You can put me in the culture. You can bombard me with whatever signs and images you want. That's, that's fine, but I am who I am in here, and that's where I'm drawing the line. I love the line in verse 8. He resolved he would not defile himself. If you got an old King James Version, you may have heard it this way. He purposed in his heart not to be tainted by the world. I may live here. I may have to walk through here. I may have to be in this other kingdom, but inside I know whom I follow. I'll go to your classes. I'll get hundreds on the spelling tests. I'll learn the languages. I'll know all these magic and incantation things, but in here I know whom I follow. I may be in the Babylonian world, but I am not going to be of it. For Daniel and these guys, it wasn't about titles. It's about their testimony. And we've got to have to admit, sometimes you and I care a whole lot more about what people call us than we do about our convictions. Because what they call us deals with our titles and our reputations. But our convictions aren't what we claim. Their convictions are what we actually are and what we do. And Daniel says, I've got convictions. And you can't touch those. I have purposed in my heart. Before I ever get to the boardroom, 
I purpose in my heart. Before I ever think about that relationship in the office, I've already made my commitment. Before, I, before anybody ever asks me to pad the bottom line to make the numbers look better, I've already made a conviction in my heart. I'm not going to cross it. Because see, if you don't have those set in stone before the temptation comes, it's probably too late. The temptation comes up, the orders come up, and you're dead in the water. But Daniel says, I've got a conviction in my life and I will not cross it. I know the potential consequences, I get it, and I'm willing to endure those to stand on this particular conviction. So, see, we all like the title, if we're in this room, of being Christians. But God wants us to also have a testimony. We all want the salvation and all the blessings that accrue with being Christians. But God wants our obedience. We want all the perks of having this fantastic God, but, but God wants it to impact the areas of our lives that matter. That's where Daniel says, look, I may live behind these walls. I may be inundated with your philosophy, but I will not join allegiance. I will not worship the king or any other ruler. I know who I serve. I'll learn your system. I may do quite well in your system, but it will not change who I am or who I serve and how I make my decisions. And these four guys have no idea that just three chapters from now, there's going to be a fiery furnace. In five chapters from now, there's going to be a lion's den. All they know is that they made a hard and fast decision about what they're going to do in the cafeteria. And God looks down and says, hmm, I now have what I need for the next 70 years. Guys who are going to be mine, who will run through seven different kings and two empires living for me. Guys who are going to have a testimony, testimony, and the story is about to take off in some amazing ways. Without their belief in God permeating even the smallest decisions of their lives, I don't think we'd have a book of Daniel. We just have 70 years of darkness. But watch where it goes. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. We'll just power on through uh, the next four verses. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, that means three years later, after, after Babylonian University for three years, they are brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brings them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with him. And among all of them was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, under King Cyrus, you might want to write this, 539 B.C. It's important. What year do we start? 605. You might think, see, because of all the greatness that, that Daniel was when he made that commitment, those four guys made those, that commitment not to eat the, the king's food, that man, that, that, that's going to be so awesome. God's going to just do amazing things. Everything's going to work out great. But now, here's what happens to Daniel. He stays a slave. 
for the next 66 years. They had to finish three years of Babylon University, and there was no immediate instant gratification for being obedient. God didn't say, hey man, great choice in the cafeteria. That's awesome. I'm calling you back home. It's all going to be great. No. God had them continue to live in this weird, new, bizarre world and have to deal with all the pain and the heartache that comes from living in this world. That's where God has you and me, right here in America. Things don't necessarily get easy following Christ, but my oh my, can God use us when we are sold out to him? Look what God did just in these 10 days of this diet. I got to tell you, people, I don't think this is about, this is not a biblical diet we're all supposed to go out and do. Uh, You just don't eat vegetables for 10 days and have people go, oh my gosh, what happened to you? You look phenomenal. You're awesome. There's no such thing as a 10-day diet like that. I think as soon as they made that, that, that commitment, God sort of intervened and said, okay, you're going to make that stand. I'm going to enter into the fray. Blessings tend to follow obedience, right? God, from the very beginning of Israel, says, hey, if you obey me, keep my command, then out of all the nations, you will be blessed. You'll be my treasured possession. God always says, if then. If you are obedient, then. If you choose me, then here's what I'll do, right? But you know what? You can't sit in the back of the cafeteria, and ask, where's God in all this, when you haven't made the conscious decision to actually obey him and follow him, have that conviction. So, how do you live in Babylon? I'll just give you three points before we're done. How do we live in America as Christians? We have the purpose in our hearts to obey God. Have your convictions firmly drawn. Am I in or am I not? Do I just want the title and the perks of being a Christian, you know, a God that answers my prayers, a God that I can kind of order around, or am I really going to say, this is who I follow, and he's following, I'm not following. I'm following him, because when I make God my Lord, he becomes the one who leads. Number two, we need to allow those decisions that we made to impact every aspect of our lives. Am I willing to say, that what I do as a Christian affects more than just what I do on Sunday morning. It means the language I use at work, how I treat my spouse, how I love even when I don't get love back, how I give with what I've been blessed with. Am I, am I willing in my sexuality, in my finances, in my relationships, in my sphere of influence to say that every aspect of my life falls under the command of, the direction of this God? This is tough because here's the deal. Number three, we have to live out that obedience regardless of the outcome. And when you, when, you, when you pray and you try to follow God and you want your marriage to get better but it hasn't gotten better, maybe it's gotten worse, and you, you're inclined to sort of throw your hands up in God and say, God, you don't exist, here's the deal. Are you following God just because you expect him to improve your marriage or your finances or your kids? Is that all it is? Or are you following God because he's God? See, one is lordship and the other is blackmail. Well, I tried to follow God, but we're not better off financially when we started, so I'm chucking it. See, what you wanted was a genie that you can rub and he hasn't come through, so you jettison him. Or do you follow God because he is God? These four guys decide to follow God, and what happens? Well, they get some rewards, but it's all in the kingdom, but not much else. They're still... 
slaves. They learn a lot, they learn, but they learn wizardry and potions and weird stuff like how to, how to cup a, a sheep's liver and, and discern the future. And they're in slavery for 66 years. But we are going to see in the next few weeks what four slaves can do when God starts to move through them in Babylon. And I've got to tell you, we live here in Babylon in the United States. And God says this, he is still looking for people who claim him as Lord, who purpose not to be tainted by the world. I may have to live here, but I don't have to be of this world. And that conviction is going to govern everything about who I am, regardless of the outcomes. God, I'm going to follow you. See, our story in the Bible here starts in 605, but our story today with us starts right now, 2016. Your story starts in 2016. Who are you going to follow? Who's your God? God, thank you for your word that strikes us at our heart heart level. We spend so much of our time following our own path, following our own gods, following ourselves, following what we want, following what we want to do. How many times should we sit back and say, God, what is it you want? What does you want me to do? How do you want me to be? How do you want me to think? How do you want me to operate in this world that is totally against you? totally in rebellion to how can you use me to be what I'm supposed to be and Lord however it works out it's going to work out because you're in charge I may still stay a slave for 66 years things may not improve all that much but I have confidence as we look at this book of Daniel that you can do great things with people who are sold out to follow you God help us to be those people in America today in Falls Church today in Northern Virginia today. Amen.